The scripture reading is Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah is located a few books past Psalms and Proverbs. And if you're reading from the Pew Bible, this is on page 637. Let us hear God's word for us. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go away from them. For they are all adulterers, a company of treacherous men. They bend their tongue like a bow, falsehood and no truth, and not truth has grown strong in the land. For they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone beware of his neighbor, and put no trust in any brother. For every brother is a deceiver, and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor, and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity, keeping oppression upon oppression, and deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and test them. For what else can I do because of my people? Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. With his mouth, each speaks peace to his neighbor. But in his heart, he plans an ambush for him. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? I will take up weeping and wailing for the mountains and a lamentation for the pastures of the wilderness because they are laid waste so that no one passes through and the lowing of cattle is not heard. Both the birds of the air and the beasts have fled and are gone. I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a lair of jackals, and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. Who is the man so wise that he can understand this? To whom has the mouth of the Lord spoken that he may declare it? Why is the land ruined and laid waste like a wilderness so that no one passes through? And the Lord says, Because they have forsaken my law that I set before them and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts and have gone after the Baals as their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, The God of Israel, behold, I will feed this people with bitter food, and I'll give them poisonous water to drink. I will scatter them among the nations whom neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider and call for the mourning women to come, send for the skillful women to come. Let them make haste and raise a wailing over us, that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids flow with water. For a sound of wailing is heard from Zion. How we are ruined, we are utterly shamed, because we have left the land, because they have cast down our dwellings. Hear, O women, the word of the Lord, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach to your daughters a lament, and each to her neighbor a dirge. For death has come up into our windows, it has entered our palaces, cutting off the children from the streets and the young men from the squares. Speak, thus declares the Lord, the dead bodies of men shall fall like dung upon the open field, like sheaves after the reaper, and none shall gather them. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, 
Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh, Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray uh, once again. Lord, we pray that you would draw us into the joy and relief of confidence in you. Lead us away, Lord, from the barrenness and destruction of self-confidence. Lord, lead us to see your greatness and give ourselves up to you as our Lord and our God. Bless us, Lord, from your word. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. <clears throat> Jimmy uh, Fallon's hashtag this week, if you keep up with that sort of thing, um, was awkward breakups. And so one girl sent this one in. She, uh, her boyfriend had cheated on her, and in order to maximize his embarrassment and pain, she broke up with him in front of his friends. And as she describes it, she started walking away and her hair got caught in a tree for 20 minutes. So you can imagine, and I never want to see you again. Oh, oh, you know, just ridiculous. All right. That's what boasting will do for you. As I found out, seventh grade lunchroom, place of madness and confusion. Um, I was sitting eating lunch with my friends and cute little Martha Wise came up behind me. We kind of liked each other, but somehow she said something that got on my nerves and I felt I had to defend myself. And I said something, I don't remember what, to try to put her down. Okay. I was immature, didn't have a clue, obviously. So she immediately walked off a bit hurt, and uh, I was full of myself in front of the guys, you know. I just told her off. And so I took my empty milk carton, you know, and I was feeling all great, and I just I said, I told her off like that, except the milk carton wasn't empty. And so an explosion of milk in my face, as I said, I showed her, you know. And, of course, the guys mocked me mercilessly for years after that. And I deserved every bit of it. I was boasting, it was ugly, and I paid for it. Boasting's just not an attractive thing. Nobody likes a person who boasts about himself or herself. Uh, there's even a proverb, right? Proverbs 27, 2. Let another praise you and not your own mouth. And that likely came from 
outside of Israel, like everybody knows that, okay? Everybody knows, don't praise yourself. Let somebody else do that. That's an ugly, hideous thing to praise yourself. So that's pretty hard to do sometimes when other people don't seem to want to praise you as much as you want to be praised, right? You think you have to make up the difference um, for their neglect. Um, We sure don't think of boasting as a virtue, right? You ever associated those two? Boasting as a virtue. Uh, Something actually commanded, excuse me, commanded by God. But that's what we have here. He doesn't say in verses 23 and 24, which are our object this morning. uh, He doesn't say there, stop all boasting. Don't boast at all, right? He says, don't boast in your wisdom, power, or riches, but boast in me. So, actually, we're commanded to boast. We should be boasters, but boasters in God. And so we want to look at this and see what God is getting at here. And so the first question that comes to mind, and this hit me the first time I read it years ago, was what does boast mean here? You know, what does it mean to boast in God? I don't, don't know that I connect with that. You know, I don't wake up in the morning usually with a prayer, oh Lord, help me boast in you today. What would I mean by that if I said it, right? So, boasting, uh, first of all, means to put your confidence in something. To put your confidence in something. For instance, Psalm 20, verse 7 says this, Some boasts in chariots and boast in horses, but we boast in the name of the Lord. You can see the idea of confidence. We Some put their trust in these things. We put our trust in God. So boasting obviously means to put your confidence in something. Uh, Psalm 49, verse 6 speaks of those who... Trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. So those are parallel phrases. They trust in their wealth. They boast in their uh, riches. So it's the same. It, it means basically the same thing. So Matthew Poole wrote that to boast in God then is to trust and depend on God in every circumstance. To trust and depend on God in every Circumstance, And when you're trusting in someone or something, you're trusting in the qualities of that person or thing, right? You admire the qualities. You think that person or thing is worthy of your trust. So it's associated with honor and praise. For instance, in Psalm 34, 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. You see, I will bless him. I will praise him. I will boast in him. So it's to entrust yourself to this God, to have confidence in him and to admire his greatness. You take, you boast in him You admire his greatness, you praise him, and you honor him. And it really means then that you're building your whole world around this God. He so attracts you and amazes you 
that you are drawn to him and you want to put your confidence in him, your whole life in his hands, and spend your life admiring him and bringing him honor. That's to boast in God. And he then becomes the meaning and purpose of your life, the point of everything you do. You could say he becomes your glory. He becomes your glory. Love that phrase. And so you have to ask, what do you depend on for life and significance and meaning and safety and protection and even ultimate kicks, you know, ultimate purpose? What do you depend on for that? What gets you through the day? Why do you wake up in the morning? Whatever it is, whatever combination of things, that's what you boast in. That's what you honor. That is what you serve. And I think this idea of boasting can help defend us from sin, help deal with sins in our lives. Because to boast in God is the same as glorying in God. That means, of course, that God is my glory. He's my meaning. He's the definition of my life. And so I could address men, young and old, in this way, what about the private sin of lust? Are you going to glory in that sin? Because to practice it, to give yourself to it, is to glory in it. In a sense, to make it your glory instead of God, right? Will we then boast in that sin? Are you going to make that sin the meaning and definition of your life? For you married men, is deceiving your wife going to be your glory? See? That helps me. really helps me to see the true nature of what I'm doing. How I'm giving myself and exalting sin itself. And making it my God. In Philippians 3... Paul talks of people whose God is their belly. That's his first phrase. God is their belly. And that means just that their God is their own desire. Right? Your own desires, what you want, is your God. And whatever your desires say, okay, I'll obey you. I will submit myself to you, O God, you know, my desire. So that's the first phrase. Whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame. Right? What they glory in is their shame. And that helps me to defend myself. Not that I always do that well, but that helps me to say, Darwin, this thing you're choosing to do, this thing that is tempting you, you, would you make it your glory, which really will be your shame? So... There are many things, of course, that we glory in that, in fact, are our shame. And men, we, of course, need to make our glory the gracious and goodwill of God who teaches us to be protectors of women, right? And true and deep lovers of our wives. Let that be our glory. Let that be our glory. And for you young guys or guys who are single... You as well must protect and honor women, and many of you will be married one day. And I want to tell you, you begin loving your wife right now. You 
begin loving her by being faithful in your regard for other women. And as much as possible, you want to bring into your marriage a life and practice of faithfulness. And many couples here can tell you the pain of that not being the case. Of when unfaithfulness and practices are brought into a marriage. So you start loving your wife now. By how? Glorying in the goodness of God. Glorying in the goodwill of God. Who commands us to be kind and loving toward one another. But this applies to all of us and to any sin we may be dealing with. So all of us ask that self, uh, ourselves that question. Am I going to make this my glory, right? My boast and confidence in life? Because when you give yourself to sin, you're actually coming to sin for happiness. You know, Pascal said it, that even if a man hangs himself, he's trying to be happy. <laughs> he really is. He's going for, he's going for the gold, Going for life. And the reason you're not sin is we don't believe God's going to give us life and we're hoping this will give us life. Every time we do. And in a way then, you see, we're saying, be my glory. Give me meaning. Give me significance. I will boast in you, you see, when we give ourselves to sin. Is fear and self-protection going to be your glory? Perhaps some of you have a constant suspicion of others' motives. You're always assuming the worst motive. So you can justify your martyr complex, your suffering life, your I've always got it bad existence, your concoction of drama or your isolation. And you've got to ask yourself the question, as I have to ask myself that question, because too much of that's autobiographical. I won't tell you which parts. Uh, <laughs> no. Everything's autobiographical when you're talking about sin. But you and I have to ask ourselves, is that going to be my glory? Is that what I'm going to boast in? Is gossip going to be your glory? Anger going to be your glory? Is entertainment or sports? And yes, I love them both. Is that going to be my glory? Or is God going to be my true glory? Is he going to be the boast of my life? So, what do you put your confidence in? What do you call your glory? What do you name as your ultimate meaning in life? What do you want to honor with your life? And of course, it's not a one-time decision. It's a daily struggle, right? It's a day-to-day -day warfare. Where will I put my confidence? Who will be my glory? What will be my glory? So I think that's something of the meaning then of boasting in this or that thing, boasting in God. So let's talk, though, secondly, about the context of this boasting. And that's why I had us read this whole passage, uh, the whole chapter 9, because if you're like me, you've known verses 23 and 24 for a long time, but... I have no idea what happens in the rest of the chapter or before or after, you know. Just, I, you know, amputate a couple of verses and I'm going to use them to, to help me somehow. But the context is really important here. Uh, when he says don't boast in wisdom, might, or riches, uh, he's basically saying don't boast in yourself. Don't boast in who you are, 
what you have or what you can do. And uh, this means don't put your confidence in wisdom, might, or riches. The context, though, has been their mistreatment and unfaithfulness to one another, right? Just going at it over and over again in this passage. And it's about the coming judgment because of their sin. That's the context for this. In fact, when you come to these verses, after reading those first 22 verses, it almost, and some people have even thought this was editorially added later. It couldn't have been in the context because it just seems to come out of nowhere. You know, judgment, judgment, judgment. And then this statement about uh, letting the wise man bust in his wisdom. But the context is so important. They were facing judgment, and yet, like America is in many ways, confident of their strength, confident of their wealth, confident of their wisdom. Everything's fine. They're going to be fine. But God is saying to them, in the midst of the coming judgment, don't boast in your wisdom or strength or wealth. Don't depend on all that you have and all that you can do. Your accomplishments will mean nothing in judgment. They cannot stop judgment. They will do you no good in the day of judgment. I had a friend uh, about my age who tragically has since died several years ago. We'll say his name is Frank. Frank lived in another city and completely unknown to me. He got mixed up with a group of people that had decided that the federal government had no right to collect an income tax. Uh, In their research, they decided that the 16th Amendment that was ratified in 1913 was, in fact, illegal and unconstitutional. You can imagine where this one's going. Okay, it seems like the federal government didn't agree with Frank and his friends about their interpretation of American history. But before their cases came to trial, he attended the the case of another tax evader just to kind of see what am I going to be up against? How is he going to do? And that fella had brought in a stack, as is the way Frank described it to me, a stack of historical documents proving beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's illegal and unconstitutional to require an income tax. He said that evidence was put on the judge's desk like this, and the judge just took it, and he did this. Gone. Not one word is going to be brought into evidence. And he knew he was in trouble. (laughs) Frank knew it's going to be bad. Uh, By the way, you might think Frank died in prison. um, But in fact, uh, a jury decided against prison in his case simply because the federal prosecutor was so mean-spirited and vindictive that the jury decided against her and in favor of Frank. So sometimes you like somebody that's vindictive, uh, gets you off the hook. But that's another story. So I want to say this, if you're hoping that you can stand on your own before this God, that with your own stuff and on your own good and with your own accomplishments, then you need to see God taking all of your accomplishments and just dumping them like that and saying, your accomplishments have nothing to do with my having favor upon you. 
they play no place in my having favor on you. Let's talk about knowing me. That's what God's word would be to you and me. You're boasting in all of it. Let's talk about this boast that should be there. Boast in me. What can you say about that? About your knowing me. And what Israel faced in judgment is a picture of what the world faces in judgment. Israel's destiny with judgment is a foretaste of this whole world's destiny with judgment. And in that day, nothing will do any person any good except that he or she knows God. That's all that will do you in that day is that you know God. In the recent tornado that hit Kay's hometown of Louisville, one man told us how he and his wife had taken shelter under a stairwell and in the first uh, few moments of the tornado, everything around them just vanished. The wall, the stairwell, it was gone and they were like two leaves, he said, just flattened out trying to hang on to the slab as they were just being blown away around by the wind. She got knocked out, but was able to come too. They made it through. He said, the amazing thing was, we had wall-to-wall carpeting. And it was gone. (laughs) And we were there, okay? And then Kay's own brother, Speedy, that's not a nickname, that's a real name. Uh, (laughs) um, Speedy and his wife, Jamie, were in a small bathroom in their house, and the tornado hit. He was hovered over Jamie to protect her. Everything just rattled. They were just shaking, and the whole second story was torn off their house, and the kitchen that was right behind this bathroom was just torn out, you know. And Speedy talks about this, and He says, every person needs to realize that if they stand before God in that day and his power is directed toward them, they will be pulverized. And he said it almost trembling. Just having the edges of a little bit of God's power strike his house. He was just trembling at the thought of appearing before that God bare on your own with your own stuff, and that power obliterating you forever. Judgment is coming. It's, it's called, Paul in a phrase in First Thessalonians says, the wrath to come. It's not a static judgment, right? It's not uh, wait, it, it, it's, it's not oblivious to what's happening It's not resting somewhere, ignoring the situation. It is a coming judgment. You get some sense of the devastation of this judgment when in verses 21 and 22, he describes death and personifies it. As Derek Kidner writes, death not only prowls in the streets, but it climbs the windows and the fields are strewn with its unnatural harvest. God is painting that gruesome, terrible picture to try to get at our hearts to say, you can't fathom how terrible judgment is going to be. What are you going to do? 
what are you going to boast in? And in that context, he says, don't be boasting in your wisdom or your strength or your riches. Anything that you are, anything that you do, you boast only in this one thing. You have a relationship with the living God who is bringing that judgment. That's the context for these verses is this judgment of God. So we talked some about the meaning of this judgment of putting confidence in something and then this context of, uh, of this uh, boasting and then the, the context of this boasting, which is judgment. And finally, I want to talk about the object of this boasting. The object of this boasting, which he says is that you know me that I'm a God who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Now, as we read in this chapter, Israel was marked by their treachery toward one another, right? Their deception of one another, abusing one another. In fact, the, the term deceiver in verse 4 is the same from the same word as the word Jacob in, in Genesis. And you may recall, Jacob was the second of the twins. Esau came first, but Jacob came out hanging on to his heel, right? And of his older brother. And so his name was given supplanter or deceiver. And that his early career certainly proved that out as he sought to supplant his older brother and deceive his older brother. And so God is saying here, you're the whole of the nation now. It's no longer Israel, he who wrestles with God. It is Jacob, the supplanter, the dis, the, those who deceive one another. And in the midst of that indictment of their treachery, in verse 3, he says, they do not know me. And again, in verse 6, they refuse to know me. You see, that's the background of his saying here, you need to boast in this, that you know me. The God that practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. It's against this backdrop of their not knowing God and not being like God, practicing love and righteousness and justice. This is the meaning of knowing God, knowing him as this God of steadfast love and justice and righteousness. His devoted love and His absolute fairness is such a contrast to their own treachery and deception and unfaithfulness. God is basically saying, know me and know my ways. Know me and know my ways. But you see, these aren't simply God's standing on one side of the field and we're on the other. And he says, you've got to do all of these things. You've got to be loving and just and righteous before I have anything to do with you. You better learn these things. But as one writer says, these are his gifts to us before they are his expectations from us. It's always the way it is with God's grace. He has to give us new character. He has to bring that gift to us. In fact, when it says here, uh, he 
who practices steadfast love. This word is also translated many times as make. In fact, it's used in Genesis 1, four times at least, as a parallel word for God creating the world. So it says he made the great lights or he made the beasts or let us make man in his image. So really this is saying that I'm the God who brings about loving kindness and righteousness and justice in the earth. I'm the God who creates these things. I'm the God who makes these on on the earth. And so for you and me, it means in the first place that you must believe that he is a God of steadfast love toward you if you will entrust yourself to him. That is, you've got to believe that he will deal fairly with you, that he will deal righteously with you, that he will do you well all your days. You begin to admire and attracted to him and want to put your life in his hands that he will do you good. He will help you. Righteousness speaks of God's salvation. It speaks of God's deliverance, his saving, delivering power. So you must know him as the God who makes this brings about this loving kindness into your life, who in his love will deliver you from sin and guilt. He will deliver you from your practice of sin, your habits of sin, your slavery to sin. He's the God who shows this goodness towards you and recreates this goodness in you, you see. And so... It is to begin to say, Lord, I want to give my life up to you so that you can create these things in me. Make me this kind of person of steadfast love and righteousness and justice. Bring about goodness in me, Lord. We, in saying that he's our boast, we begin to commit ourselves to his very character, right? We want to entrust ourselves to who he is, that he might make us like himself, that we could become like this good God. It means when you say to know him, it, 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 in essence, in scripture, idea of knowing means to be united to him, to be joined to him. In vital relationship with him. You're letting him get his gracious hands on you. To take hold of you and remake you. And it means that I must be done then with self-promotion and self-advancement and self-protection. Hanging on to my wisdom and strength and riches. I must be all in with this God of goodness and sell out to his goodness that I might receive that goodness and be made into the image of that goodness. That's to boast in God. To know this God who is sheer goodness in everything that he does. He says, that's what to boast in. Boast that you know me. You understand me. And this boasting will include because we admire him and we're putting our confidence in him, if it means that we must suffer, if it means that we must sacrifice, no, you're my boast. 
You're my boast, and you will be my boast and my glory if I lose everything. You will be my glory. In fact, because you are my glory, ultimately everything can be taken away from me because you are my glory and nothing else. See, it enables you to suffer and sacrifice for this God when he becomes your glory. And it means also that you will growingly have a desire to tell others about him, to praise him to others at the right time and with the, in the right opportunity, to glory in him to others so that they might want to glory in this God so that they might be attracted to this God. And this, just to close and to move toward the table, this, the New Testament version of this, in a sense, is Paul's statement in Galatians 6, where he says, May it never be that I would boast, there's our word, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see, through this cross, I've been crucified to all that the world would propose to, for me to put my confidence in. I, I've crucified myself to anything that might be my boast, that might be my glory, that might might give myself to it to say, you give me life. I've been crucified to all of that. And here's my boast. It's the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. You talk about steadfast love and righteousness and justice from God bursting forth. It's never burst forth like it did in the cross. His steadfast love showing itself that when he became a man, he actually sacrificed for us and stood in our place and bore our punishment in our place, even though we despised him at the time. Yeah, that's a God to boast in. That's a God to glory in. The God who poured out his justice and manifested his justice, that even his own son is not spared his justice. Even his own son is not spared his wrath when sin is put upon him. And his righteousness to deliver us, to rescue us, and to clothe us with his own righteousness, to give us a righteous standing in Christ. That's what we boast in. That is this God that we boast in, the God who came in the flesh and sacrificed himself for us. And so every day, in every circumstance, that must be our glory. When we suffer loss, we suffer difficult circumstance, we suffer whatever God may bring to us because our confidence is not in those things. And sometimes when you lose stuff, Sometimes when things are taken away from you, that's, that's self-discovery, right? Wow, did I depend upon that. <laughs> wow, did I glory in that and was that a stab to me. Not that losing things will never be painful, but ultimately and finally that my meaning, my framework, everything that I live for, is the cross of Jesus Christ. That has become my boast. That has become my glory. And if you are exploring the claims of Jesus Christ, 
We urge him to you. We, we urge you to ask those deep questions. What am I living for? And we're proposing that to live for God himself, a God who would sacrifice himself. What a Lord, what a king to serve. What a glory. And giving yourself and making anything else out to be your glory. And that final day, dear friend, is going to be your shame. It's going to be your shame. Because he, he is your glory. He is your glory. Let us pray. Lord, we ask you again to bring about in our lives a, a wonderful, freeing, liberating confidence in you and delight in you. May we be exhilarated, Lord, that we can be in fellowship with you, not because of anything we've done, but because of what you've done in Christ to create a relationship with you through Christ. That you've given your son to bear the punishment and to remove our sins so that we could entrust ourselves to Christ, have our sin removed, be identified with his perfect righteousness, and enter into the favor of God, not because of anything that we have done as we sang, only because of Christ. Oh Lord, you are our boast. We have no other boast. We have no other glory. Lord, make it, make it live in our lives. May this sense of glorying in you more and more take over our life. And set us free on a course of sacrificial, joyful love to others. May you, Lord, bring about, create in us this love and righteousness and justice, this goodness that you are. May we make you our glory for your honor, we pray. Amen.